Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, the show where I sit down with amazing humans and I impact their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams. Our guest today is Kate Robinson. If you're not familiar with Kate, you should know that she is the daughter and co-collaborator of the one and only Sir Ken Robinson, who has, among many storied achievements, as the most popular TED Talk of all time about why schools kill creativity. So we thought in in light of his passing not too long ago, we would bring his collaborator and his daughter, Kate Robinson, on the show to talk about the book that she completed with her father. It's an incredible book around the future of creativity. We talk about three myths of creativity, how the education system squashes it, and what you can do for yourself and your kids, your friends, your peers, the teacher's role in the revolution that we're experiencing right now. And this book, Imagine If is an incredible thing that you should put on your radar. Our conversation today is deep and meaningful. Uh, Sir Ken's, this is a manifesto of sorts that Kate wrote in collaboration with her late father. You're going to love this episode. I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy yours truly with Ms. Kate Robinson. Hey, before we get into the show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Creative Live. Creative Live is the best online platform for creative, entrepreneurial, and freelance learning, hands down. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, Creative Life subscription includes access to more than 2,000 classes in art, photography, filmmaking, design, business, entrepreneurship, and more. And those classes are taught by the world's top experts, people who have won Pulitzer Prizes, people who have won Grammys, Oscars, uh, Emmys, you name it. It's where the best and the best go to teach. Now, since day one, Creative Life has always been committed to streaming content for free for those who can't afford the subscription that gives you access to all 2,000 classes. So in 2021, Creative Life doubled down and launched a free program for, for those who could not afford it. That free program is called Back to Biz, and that helps specifically small businesses, entrepreneurs, and freelancers come back from economic challenges presented over the past two years of the pandemic. That free content is available if you want to check that out at creativelive.com slash back to biz. That's B-A-C-K-T-O-B-I-Z, creativelive.com slash back to biz. So check it out and let's get back to the show. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Coming from Windsor, yes? Windsor, yeah. Just right by the castle. Right by the castle. Um, So our conversation today has a couple of objectives. One, um, I have been interested in, as soon as I found out that you had been working closely with your father on the manifesto that he had been, um, I had undertaken prior to his passing in 2020, I immediately wanted to have you on the show didn't even know when the book was out. I had just heard something that you were working on it. And so first of all, the, the, I want to say a personal debt of gratitude to your family for being such champions for not just for education, but specifically for creativity, uh, and been a longtime fan of your father's and the fact that you are, you have been collaborating with him prior to his passing and have put out this, a new book that we'll talk about today called imagine if, creating a future for us all. Um, I want to start at the start, though, for those folks who 
might be unfamiliar, the maybe the 10 people on the planet who haven't seen <laughs> your father's TED talk about creative schools killing creativity. I'm hoping you can just orient us a little bit and start at the beginning for, I would say what, what you stand for personally as someone who's carrying forward your family legacy, but mm-hmm. maybe in you and your father in, in uh, what you stand for um, and why you think you're on the show. I mean, obviously the book, but you know, you have some values that are, uh, are, are, I want to share. So talk to us a little bit about those values. Okay. I would love to. Um, so I guess the first thing to say is that dad was a speaker and a writer and an educator an educationalist. Um, he talked a lot about education and the ways in which he felt it could improve. Um, this is me putting it nicely. The, um, it, and so I suppose at, it, at its core, his work was, well, when, when I was preparing to write the manifesto, I was reading through, rereading through all of his books and kind of going deep into everything that he had done. And um, his work very much was a criticism of the systems that we've created. And um, I'll talk probably a little bit more about that in a bit, but just about the ways in which we created the world in which we live. Um, so it was a criticism of the systems that we've created that no longer serve us. So in particular, education, which he made the point was created for a time long gone past, you know, to suit the needs of the industrial revolution. Um but at its core, my dad's work was a real celebration of what we as a species are, cre- are capable of achieving within the right conditions. Um, I keep saying it was a real love letter to human potential. It was a mm. look at what look at what we're capable of doing. Look, look at what we've achieved and imagine what we could go on to achieve mm. as a species if we created the conditions for every single person to thrive rather than systematically kind of keeping them down. Um, so that, I suppose, was the core of his work. But he had a few... Um, a few contentions. The first was that we all have incredible powers of creativity. Um, the second was that human cultures depend upon the diversity of our creative, of our talents and of our passions and of our skills. Um, and the third was that if each and every one of us identifies with what our passion is, he called it the element, which he said was where your personal passion meets your natural aptitude. So it's not enough just to be good at something. You have to really love it. And um, in in the case of being the element, element, it's not a case, you know, it's not enough to just absolutely love something. You also have to have some skill and, and knack for it. Um, so, but his his feeling was that if we all identified what our individual element was or is, um, then the world would be a much better place. And, you know, there are all sorts, it's, that sounds kind of, uh, almost kind of light and fluffy, but actually when you boil down into the reasons why the world would be a better place, you know, they go the right way down to economic. Um, there, there's a lot behind it. So he was in education for a very long time. And uh, people talk about the TED Talk, as you said. He did three in total, but the first in 2006 is still the most downloaded TED Talk of all time. Um, he had a moment when the Pope did his, when he thought this is probably the end of his reign. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, but, but he, but he, he carried on. He used to joke that it was just him pressing, <laughs> pressing replay over and over again. Um, so, but he always used to say that, you know, you don't get asked to do a Ted talk unless you've done something. Cause I think a lot of people thought his career started when he did the Ted talk. And I think he was, I can't remember. I mean, he must've been his late fifties, if not early sixties when he did the first Ted talk, late fifties. And he was already a sir at that point. He was, yeah, he? yeah, he'd been, he'd been knighted <laughs> three been. years before. <laughs> yeah, um, by my neighbour Queen Elizabeth. And um, but it, he'd done a lot, particularly over here. There was in there was one report called um, he led a number of reports, but one in particular was called "All Our Futures." Um, 
which was it was commissioned at the time in the 19 in 1999 by the then Labour government by Tony Blair to kind of look at a how to incorporate more creativity into the curriculum and it was it's a huge report and eventually the government kind of swept it under the rug when it came out because I think they were looking for a quick fix like you know do an hour of arts at the end of the week and problem solved Um, but what dad and his incredible team came back with was this huge you know whole system overhaul recommendations that um, so the the government swept it under the rug but it really lit a fire in the sector here in the UK um, all across the UK in the arts and education sector so uh, there was that and then he was involved in the the peace process in Northern Ireland so he did a huge amount but I think um, to answer the actual question you asked about core values. No this is exactly (laughs) this is exactly what we're trying to get to. Um, Yeah so his I mean his core values I suppose was was with optimism you know it was a real celebration of of humanity i think he had such a great love for humanity and you know his primary goal was to um advocate for creating systems that elevate each and every person within them there's a couple well thank you for sharing that backstory again and just so i'm gonna say it in the most blunt way that was an incredibly insanely powerful talk about the power of creativity and human spirit and in in the story that you just shared or the backstory rather you mentioned a couple things that I want to, um, you know, it's amazing. They're in my notes here, just the conditions you talked about the conditions that set us up to be successful in pursuing our passion and unlocking the creativity, which is in every person. So I want to talk about the conditions. And I also want to talk about, I think it's always important to start at the start with the definition, because a lot of people, when they think creativity, they think, uh, you know, popsicle sticks and glitter and glue guns (laughs) in, in you know in in yeah. grade five or whatever yeah, in grade friends. three <laughs> exactly exactly so you know i know you have a, a a definition in the book and i thought it might be useful for us to start there so that when when people are listening they know we're talking about creativity with the capital c mm-hmm. and not creativity with the small c so what maybe you can share that with us i can and actually the definition came from that report originally from the all our futures report in 1999 so the definition of creativity that dad used um that that we use for everything that we do is the process of having original ideas that have value and there are three key terms within that that are important i guess to talk about um the first is that creativity is a process and um you know processes when two things kind of have a conversation with each other you know there are two aspects that bounce off one another and in the case of creativity, it's idea generation and then idea evaluation. So you're constantly coming up with a new idea and then evaluating it, going back to the idea, tweaking it, evaluating that, you know, chucking it in the bin, starting again. So it's a process, it's a journey. Um, so it's a process of having original ideas. So it's, um, and, and you know, it doesn't have to be original to the world. It doesn't have to be the first time anyone in humanity has done something. It can be, but it could also be original in the context of the person who's created it. You know, it could be the first time they've thought of something in a certain way. Um, it could be original in the context of a peer group. So that person, you know, the people that that person's sort of inspired by or working with, or it could be original, you know, to humanity. Um, and then the last, which is kind of the biggest, uh, I guess, most contentious point of the definition is that it has to have value. Um, and value in this context means that it has to fit the purpose for which it's designed. So if your goal is to create a beautiful building, um, beauty is one factor of it you know that therefore to have value it must be beautiful but if it crumbles the second you open the door it doesn't have the value that you're looking for it has to be both beautiful and sound as a building so it's value in terms of what you're setting out to achieve um 
And that's, yeah, that's, that's the definition that he used. So the process. Yeah. Well, what I, what, what, uh, if I'm going to editorialize a little bit, it's not just art, like art is a sub, yeah, yeah. Art is a subset of creativity, but Mm -hmm. as soon as, you know, there, there are people listening, I mean, to be fair, over 12 years of the show, we've weeded out most of the people who are not either identify as creators, you know, entrepreneurs, or at least are creative curious. Those people, yeah. we've weeded most of those people out after a dozen, a dozen years, but there are some people who are listening or watching right now who I believe are, would call into question their own, the validity of their own, like, am I creative? Especially people who've been coached through that that system that was created by the factory and the farm for the, from the 1900s mm-hmm. who, for whom they were raised sort of with those values and, and no judgment here, but they would call into question the, how creative they are or yeah. aren't. So I'm wondering if you can, through the lens of your work, the work of your father, just, I'll just call it your family, talk to that person for a second and help them sure. understand that uh, this notion of creativity where they don't identify as possessing it or being able to engage in the process. Talk to them for a second. And I would love to hear you let them know, let them know what you think. All right. Let's call them Dave. Um, (laughs) The, um, yeah, there are three big myths around creativity um, that dad talked a lot about. And the first is that, um, Creativity is about certain people, special people, the creatives. And we we constantly enforce that in schools and particularly in businesses where you have the creatives, you know, people have the creative department. Right? Yeah. Or you say, I am a creative. You're like, what does that mean? Um, so so that's the first myth. And it's it is a myth. Um, absolutely everybody has powers of creativity. Um, and I think it's that myth stems from the second myth, which is that creativity is about certain things, about certain subjects, like you said, like pop school sticks. Um, but inherently, you know, you associate creativity with being the arts, um, with being, you know, art and music and dancing and making things. But actually, you can be creative and you are creative in absolutely anything that involves human intelligence. Uh, I give the example in the book of Dr. Amira Mehdi, who's a neuroscientist who has worked with um, people who are born blind, congenitally blind. And he's, through his systems, he's developed a way to help them to see using um I'm not a neuroscience, but the neuroscientist, but he's reverse engineered essentially ultrasounds. So you, he takes sight and then turns them into sounds. Um, and through this, people who have never seen before can look at a bowl of green apples and pick out the one red apple within it. Um, I give that example because it's a, it's a great example of how a, a subject that we think of as being purely academic, um, and I can talk about the issue with the word academic as well, but um, a subject like neuroscience, which we think of as not being creative at all, and he's, it's a great example of how it is because what he's done is, is he's identified a problem. He's come up with an idea. You know, he's gone through that process of trialing it and experimenting. Um, and then at the end of it, come out with a solution. And I think that idea of it being a process and a journey is another reason why a lot of people think that they aren't creative because you kind of think if you don't get something right on the first attempt that you're just no good at it. And that happens yeah. a lot in school when there's a right answer or a wrong answer. Um, but actually it's it's... A process and ideas are very vulnerable when you're in the creative process they can be squashed way before their time um so okay so the first myth was that um it's about special people the second is that it's about special subjects and the third is that you're either creative or you're not and there's nothing you can do about it you're born with a set amount of creativity 
when in reality creativity is you know it's a part of the brain it's it's like muscle in the same way that you, the more you practice the language the better you get at the language the more you practice and use your creative muscle the stronger it becomes um and so there's a lot that you can do about it and actually dad's first book was called out of our minds and the original subtitle they've changed it now but the original was learning to be creative which at the time in, in like the 90s was controversial because people were still of the belief that you can't how do you learn to be creative you either have it or you don't um but it's it's a pity that it's it is that issue with it being seen as being popsicle sticks in the arts not to under not to undermine that type of creativity at all but it's um you, you it's can't so limiting that. it's just so, so limiting, limiting. Yeah, yeah. yeah and damaging as a result because it, it squashes it squashes progress well, let's pull on that thread for a second. Okay. The idea of it being damaging. And if you connect the idea of, you know, creativity un unleashing, you know, our human potential of this being a love, your book, Imagine If, being a love letter to humanity, and then think about squashing creativity, essentially we're squashing our humanity. Yeah. If you if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C by the transitive property of mathematics, if I remember my math correctly. There you go. So <laughs> so it's and I it's, I love that we're talking about math while we're talking about creativity. Yeah. Um so let I think this is a good point to explore these beliefs and these what we understand to be true and some of the myths that uh inhabit our education systems, both you know, I, I think I'm speaking for the U.S. You can be speaking for the U.K., but just generally, I think this is true on a on a global scale. So, this idea that the education system sort of teaches us out of our innate creativity, and that it is, um, you know, based on a uh, on a period as you I think you talked about industrialization or post industrialization. So, talk to us about the ways that education does the squashing. Oh, it squashes. Um, yeah, the it's so it's a formal education systems, and I grew up in America, so I, f I feel like I can speak to both. Um, All right, <laughs> I grew up in LA. The um, the the formal education systems, as we recognize them, you know, most of them around the world were based on the Industrial Revolution. They were and designed in its image, and as a result, um, the Industrial Revolution needed a certain type of person. It needed a kind of kind of pyramid of people at the bottom. The majority of people that needed were workers, people who could operate the machinery and, and work. Um, and in the middle were people who could kind of be managerial. And then at the top were the kind of really top level owners and people who were um, in charge, essentially. So ed education systems were at the time designed to kind of cater to the masses to a certain point, And then they would go off and work. Obviously, we've extended that um, over time. And now most people are at school in their early 20s, if not, depending on the profession a lot longer um in terms of how it squashes it today the the example that dad gave we often talk about education being like an industrial factory um and you'll recognize this from the books so there's a whole chapter on this but the um we, we we talk about education as being an industrial factory and you can kind of see why because there's a conveyor belt and kids get on at one end and then they move along it and get kind of loaded with other information and then there's various quality checks along the way. Um, and then they have the final product that kind of gets shipped off in, into the world. There's a brilliant school um, in New York at Blue School who say that they like to think of education instead as being trying to find the 
the flint underneath rocket boosters, which I total aside, but I just really love that image instead of putting a kid in a rocket pad and trying to find what lights and sets them up, which I love. Um, but anyway, so to go back to the actual point, dad's issue with that metaphor, and he used it himself because you can see why it's caught on, but what, what gets made in a factory, you know, nuts and bolts and parts, they have no opinion on what happens to them. You know, children do. We aren't inanimate objects at any age of our life. Um, so he felt the, the actual analogy or metaphor to use was an industrial farm. So the mass production of living things. The way that industrial farms work is they focus on yield, on output. Um, they, they, you know, if you're doing plants, they focus on creating these massive fields of one type of crop and they, they grow them individually. So you've got like all the cabbages in a line and then all the radishes in a line and, um, I'm not a farmer and other things that might be growing on an industrial farm. Um, but then they get sprayed with pesticides to keep the other, the natural, you know, the insects that would feed on them. And, and they kind of, they kill the ecosystem that's around them. And at the end, you get these perfect cabbages, thousands of them, perfect, uniform cabbages. Um, but in the process, you've destroyed ecosystems. You've destroyed the topsoil. You've destroyed the animal life and the birds that feed on the animals and the creatures that feed on the birds. Um, Education does a very similar process to that. We we teach things in subjects. So you do maths from this time to this time and English from this time to this time and language from this time to this time. Um, and I make this point in the book, but if you imagine in our day-to-day -day lives as adults, if every 45 to 50 minutes someone rang a bell and made us stand up, pack our things up and move to another room to do something totally different, you'd go crazy. You know, this kind of system of you can only do 40. I mean, we, you talk about creativity, you need more, depending on the task, but the thought that you'd just be getting into something um, and then you just have to stop halfway through, forget it until the next day. So that, that's one way that it squashes creativity is it, it doesn't give you a chance to have a good run at anything. And some things don't take 45 minutes as well. Um, anyway, so, so in industrial methods of education, you subjects and dad was a big advocate for moving towards disciplines. Because with disciplines, you can be multidisciplinary. You know, you can talk about um, the similarities between things, you know, instead of saying that, okay, the sciences are very different from the arts, you can actually see how the arts and scientists are very similar. We talk about maths. There's a, um, a conductor at, uh, in Miami who uses Fibonacci sequences when he's doing his music. You know, the, it's all intertwined in the real world. So there's, it's, it's separating things out. And then the big, the big one is this... Um, system of quality control, the, the standardized testing that comes in. And, you know, people who disagreed with that often did it because they felt like he was against assessment. Um, he always said he didn't mind people disagreeing with him if, if they had disagreed with what he actually said. Um, that's fine. But if they made up what, he th what they thought he said and disagreed with that, that was an issue because he, he, he wasn't against assessment. Um, but there's a time and a place for it. And I think the pressure that, that we put children under to meet these tests leaves very little room for much else. And it's not just the children, the, pre the pressure that gets put on the teachers to teach to the test. Um, the whole system becomes toxic. There isn't enough space. And it, it, and such a long answer. I apologize. No, this is exactly <laughs> what this format is for. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to say about it, though, is um, a lot of the things that we do in formal education or in schools make sense from an admin point of view. It's very easy to say, okay, well, every subject gets the same amount of time and there'll be a test at this point and every child of this age should be able to do this. But it's, um, you know, if education is based on conformity, life is based on diversity. The natural world is based on diversity and it there's no space within 
I say there's no space within the system as it is. It's not, there's actually a lot more space within the system than we think. A lot of what we do isn't actually dictated or mandated. It's just the way we've always done them. Um, but it's seeing children as data points instead of humans. Yeah, this, you know, the idea to, to go back and borrow the analogy of the factory, like to, the expectation that everyone who's the same age will be able to, you know, process and learn things at the same time. And the, it's just obviously, it's obviously so rigid. Yeah. And, you know, if we want a, we want to output humans that are diverse, diverse in interest, diverse in thought, diverse in character, because that is where our strength lies, then it, it's foolish to think, right, that we ha that a system that would be so rigid could output products that are so diverse. Yeah, that's exactly. inherent. It's not designed to. No. <laughs> right? It's not. It's not that. It's not a stretch. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and so I'm fascinated by our ability and our awareness that this is the case, and then our inability, I would say culturally, this is where you and your fathers were, were aiming to create a revolution. Mm -hmm. We can we can say these words and in many senses know these things, but we still struggle to produce the yeah. change that we want to see. Is it that there are people who do not actually want this change? Or is it that not enough people are aware for this revolution to take place? The first thing I would say is I struggle to believe that anybody, I, I mean, this might just be me being very naive, but I struggle to believe that anybody wakes up and thinks, how can I screw over a generation of kids today? I don't think anybody is resistant to it because they think, and I could, I could, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that anybody up at the top is doing it because they think that this is. There's no evil genius. There's no, no. command and control. No. <laughs> yeah, like let's just make 18 years of someone's life miserable because I can. Um, I, I think I think people believe that the system, a lot of people believe that the system is fine as it is. Um, there's a lot of belief that I got through it and yes, it sucked, but you know, it was the making of me or you just have, you know, that's it's a rite of passage. You have to have those difficult years in your childhood. You have to have that teacher that just crushed your spirit, um, but you'll get through it and you'll be fine. The, the terrifying fact is, increasingly people aren't getting through it you know suicide rates for teenagers are, is an all-time high um and if you look at the studies of people asking teenagers why um why there is such a mental health crisis in our young people they will quite often cite the stresses of education and standardized testing and pressure to get into certain colleges um in particular but i don't i don't believe there is an evil genius i think um i think on one hand it's really hard to change a system because yes this system isn't working and it's it's got far too many casualties in its wake um but it's functioning you know so if we tear it down what if we be, what if there's absolute chaos um so i think there's fear to do anything that rocks the boat too much in case it has too much of a negative impact but if you actually then look at the issues that the system as it is is create is creating you know the the levels of dropouts which i hate that term i left school at 16 um the term you know people leave, leaving the system of, of their own accord or not of their own accord being excluded or expelled um you know the crime rates and and then also the cost of these programs to get kids back into education which very often rely on the personalized methods that my dad might campaign for in the first place um 
it's very hard that is to that irony we we should like <laughs> put it we should put it we should put a, a very we should draw a circle around what you yeah. just said because the literally the system that is designed to help people only comes to their aid after they have not fit within yeah fit within the most simple uh baseline and i would call sort of rudimentary factory right or yeah. or agricultural mass produced agricultural farm to use your your better analogy it's so ironic mm -hmm. and sad that that is that there's an acknowledgement that that is an effective way of you know of Getting back involved yeah and then and this belief that the uh that we can do that on a one off basis after someone has left the building so to speak versus if you could scale that mm -hmm. wouldn't you be able to save on all of the sort of costs and Absolutely. drama and i would just call it pain and yeah. suffering later on it's just it's not it's not lost on me I, i'm sorry for interrupting i just no it, no it, you're it, absolutely we, right we, i love that you did that yeah we you're have to draw we have right. to draw it's, attention um, to that that's ridiculous you know that we that we know that they work and yet we save them for special occasions when things are absolutely desperate um it's not a matter of there not being enough statistics or evidence that the and, and dad would say a lot of the arguments that he made weren't new you know he was standing on the shoulder of the giants that came before him um and the practices he was campaigning for go back eons um but the i think the other issue when you look at it from a political point of view is that there are other political agendas um, you know, certainly over here in the UK, politicians don't stay in the job for very long. You know, they kind of, they're on their way to, to the next step up the, the political rung. Um, so it's, what do they do in that time that doesn't mess things up too much for the next person or undo everything the person before them's done. So it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult game when you look at it, but dad put in the book, um, the rock and roll wasn't a government led initiative. You know, the, the governments didn't sit down and think, do you know what, if we can get people just really into this new beat, if we can just, you know, if maybe we'll put out a couple of songs, see if they get with it. And, you know, they didn't do that. We did. <laughs> it came about and then, you know, we fell in love with it and it, and it became a thing. Um, the same, you know, the same was true for same sex marriage, marriage. That wasn't a government thinking, you know, it's about time that people had these rights. It was the people demanding better. And eventually after years of struggle, the government giving in to a point, you know, and there's still a long way to go on that one. Um, so dad's belief was he'd, he'd moved away, I think probably in part because of that 1999 report, but he'd moved away from working with governments. Um, because when it boils down to it, if you're a teacher in a classroom, to the children within your class, you are the education system. You know, they don't care what's happening even in the classroom down the hall, let alone the school down the street or the one in the next town or the next country or across the world. They don't care about PISA results or anything they care about how they're going to get from 8 30 a.m to 4 p.m in the afternoon to to get through the day how they're going to pass this semester how they're going to get through their exams and whether or not they'll go to college so if you as a teacher dad's point was if you're within the system if you have a teach as a teacher change your practice change the way you approach education to the kids in your classroom you've changed the system as far as they care and his feeling was when enough people do that the system begins to break um and that's how revolutions happen. They happen from the ground up. And actually there, you know, there is a huge movement towards it, but I think, um, I think what is missing from the revolution that, that we're campaigning for is the voice of young people. You know, if you, if you look particularly this generation that's in school now, if you look at what they've done already and what they've achieved, um, you look at, you know, um, school strike for climate or March for our lives or, you know, the young voices of black lives matter. 
if young people were to look around and realize actually they don't have to put up with this, <laughs> you know, and educate themselves on their rights, you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that education should be to the fulfillment of the whole individual. Um, I think that's when the revolution happens myself. I think, I think a lot of people, of, uh, you know, of our age and above and below buy into it and believe it, believe it because they've had their own experience with it. But we do a very good job of telling young people they don't have a voice and that they have to get through this. And we terrify them. You know, if you don't do this and you'll never go to college and you'll never get a job. And, and it's a lie, you know, because so many people do, they get the grades and they go to the top college and they graduate and where are the jobs? You know, there's, it's not, it's not the golden ticket they expect, you know, to sweep them through to retirement anymore. It's just, even the lie and, is old and outdated. Right, and you know? even the fact that most of the jobs that the people who are in school now will have do not yeah. actually exist. Don't exist. Yeah. yeah. And, the, yeah. and the time of most people choosing a career or a vacation and doing it, you know, from the minute they leave school until the day they retire is also, you know, that's gone. People, people change jobs so often throughout their careers. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's time. <laughs> well, speaking and, and of... Um, no, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's one of the, the saddest things. I mean, it, dad passing away would have been, you know, for, for, on a personal level, there was never a good time for that to happen. Um, and, you know, and he was only 70, so he, it definitely was not a good time on a personal level. But um, if from a, a wider level, the tragic thing about the timing of his death, I think, is that there has never been a more important time for this message. You know, he said that the more complex the challenges of the world become, the more creative we need to be to face them. And they're so complex at the moment. You know, they're so complex at, at this point where we are, you know, with the pandemic and with everything else that's happened. And the pandemic is one, you know, it's a massive one, don't get me wrong, but there's there's all the issues that were there before the pandemic that need addressing as well. Um, all the new ones that are happening at the moment as well. Um, it, it's, it, there was the, it is time. You know, they, we, time. We, we, we have come as far as we possibly can as a species down this path. We can't keep doing what we've been doing forever. We'll, We'll break the planet. Will break. Um, it, both things are already breaking. That's one of the things that I love about your book is it's a call to action to address these things. And you mentioned the book uh, just briefly in uh, a couple of points, and I've cited it one time. I want to just call it out explicitly. It's called "Imagine If Creating a Future for Us All." Um, collaboration between Sir Ken Robinson, your father, and you, Kate, and. It's extraordinary. And I love the package. You know, you open with the, uh, the quote, if, you know, sorry, this is, um, or normally when you write a letter, sorry, this is so long. If I had more time, I would have made it shorter, yeah. uh, but it's just, it's just an absolutely beautiful at a, at a hundred pages. Um, it's so digestible and it, it does such a great job of packaging these ideas that we speak about. And I'm wondering if you can, um, take us through the process of actually creating the book, given that this yeah. podcast is about creativity, innovation, and, you know, maximizing human potential. Um, you write, you know, the concept and the process of writing the book is very, very difficult. And I'm wondering if you can lay out the story and the timeline a little bit yeah. for us. You know, your father had a, the big, had a life of service, you know, was knighted by the queen, had his Ted talk and, you know, wrote several books in the process but at some point, you know, pick up the narrative where, you know, your father got sick. Um, he had been, you know, there's all the books and you decided uh, that you need to package all this up. So walk us through the creative process for the book and a little bit about the timeline so we can put it in space. <laughs> uh, well, so the book, um, 
the the idea for the book came from dad's agent a man called peter miller who passed away in august of 2021 um I'm fighting the urge that this book might be cursed but um he passed away in august of 2021 and it was it was his idea that you know um that there's so much to dad's work but it's almost daunting um so what we needed was a concise you know sort of circuit romps almost for beginners book that was just an overview of everything that he believed and so the original contract with penguin i think was for 10,000 words um this book as tiny as it is is 25,000 words so i i upped it a bit um it was a joke though for years a family joke that if dad told you he couldn't meet you because he was working on the manifesto we called it the manifesto for years but if dad said you know i can't i'm working on the manifesto he was just blowing you off um because <laughs> because um because he wasn't, <laughs> you know, the original contract, the deadline was 2017, I think. Um, so it was, this, it was this big thing in his life because I think that thing, because it's so hard to be concise and what do you put in it and what do you, what do you leave out? Um, what you leave out is almost more important than what you put in it because you then have to kind of address it somehow. Um, so he, it had been this big mammoth thing <laughs> in our lives for a long time, this tiny little book. Um, and he got sick. So my parents moved they were in LA for 20 years. I moved back to London in 2012. Um, they moved back to England. They packed up the house, sold the house and moved back in March, 2020, two days before the pandemic, the lockdowns over here started. Um, and then in April, dad got sick and uh, he was supposed to get better. He spent a month in hospital, he had surgeries. Um, and then it went from, you'll be fine by Christmas to, it's spread and there's nothing we can do. So we had two and a half weeks from prognosis to him passing away. Um, just before, I think, I think he, I think he was worried he wasn't going to get as better as he had hoped. So he had asked me to help him write the book because we've been working together for years. Um, and we're like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll write it when you're better. Um, and then he wasn't going to get better. So we spent a lot of the two and a half weeks. I got married in that two and a half weeks, um, which is crazy. <laughs> um, but it was our last, you know, it was our last, happy day which was nice he he got, he got to be there and give me away um the but we spent most of it talking about the book and he'd done a talk in may of 2020 organized by tim shriver called the call to unite um so and it was done kind of to keep morale up i think as well um you know in may 2020 we kind of thought maybe it'll be a few more weeks of the pandemic maybe you know we'll just come on we've come this far it'll be over soon um but it but i think um dad poured his heart into it because he knew he was sick when he did the call to unite and so he essentially said to me that's the manifesto it's it's that talk and it's actually that talk is essentially from the factory to the farm chapter in the book um so we had a we had i'd say a week maybe where we worked in it and then he got too sick to carry on working and he left me um everything you know so i have I have everything I have. He was a hoarder. I have everything like his tax returns from the seventies, um, which were not relevant to the book. <laughs> um, but I, you know, we have things like the notes from the Ted talks. And so one of our objectives at the moment is we're building an archive. So that's an aside. Um, and it was kind of terrifying, you know, cause how, and I knew, I knew it would be because I knew how do you, on one hand, it's fantastic that, you know, he, he lived and breathed his work. So on one hand to have his work, live on is a way of me keeping him alive um you know and he was my hero he was my you know mr is my hero he was the best person i've ever met um so to have that little bit of him still going is is selfishly amazing um but then how do you make big decisions because what he had was an outline so how do you make big decisions about what goes into it and what doesn't and um he wanted it to be kind of 
almost like the Holstein Manifesto, you know, a one page thing. Um, I think Penguin wanted it to be a longer book and felt like it should be. And I kind of, I agreed with them on that. So the books, the first thing I did was how do I marry these two visions? Dad's vision of this being a 10,000 page book and now he's died. And so it has to be a bigger book. Um, so I came up with the idea of manifesto statements. So every chapter starts with a statement. And the idea is if you pull those 10 statements, that's, that's the manifesto at, at its core. That's those 10 statements are dad's life's work. Um, and then each chapter goes into it. And I, um, I read, I reread all of his books. I read the books that he inspired him. Um, in particular, Chase, I just lied to you. I didn't, I tried, I tried really hard to read the books that inspired him. It would have, it would have been great if I did, but they're really dense. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, for sure. <laughs> I dropped the- out of a PhD in philosophy. Did you? Well, the, there you the, are. Den- the, the density of the reading <laughs> broke me. <laughs> exactly. I would have to recount, you recount for like, you read three pages yeah. and you're like, I, I can't. I, got it. I have to go on vacation now. <laughs> well, his favorite book, to his credit, was a book called Philosophy in a New Key by Susan K. Langer, and I'm still on page seven. Um, <laughs> Eighteen months later, I just um, and it's the seven pages have been life changing. So I, you know, imagine what the rest have in them. But um, what I got from that was he had such a skill of making difficult big concepts seem so succinct and mm-hmm. relatable and understandable. So that was a big thing. How do you take these big issues and make them? So I tried to read Philosophy in Key, and I did read um, Emotional Intelligence. Um, and then he kind of took over in a way, you know, it was for three, it took three months to write it and he, I locked myself away. Um, and it was like hanging out with him for three months. You know, I got to get his voice in my head and, and try and put my, his, his voice into my voice and my voice into his voice because the whole book's written as him. Um, what's can you talk about that editorial choice for a second Mm -hmm. the the decision yeah the decision for you to write it but write it in his voice voice. i think that's fascinating um it's his it's his book you know it's his it's his manifesto it's his you know I've, i've helped to write it but it's his lifetime of work um and i think he was so affable you know he was so personable i remember asking him i was i used to be terrified of public speaking and um made no part better by the fact that my father is one of the world's best public speakers one of the best that doesn't ever. help that doesn't help stage fright no 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 slides no notes no, just strolling no, just, around making no. brilliant jokes yeah you know oh, yeah. Everything oh. up in a bow. um yeah that's a terrifying legacy when you get asked to do public speaking and i remember asking i remember asking him once for some tips and he said um just go out and speak to people you know, they're just people go out and talk to them, which is so simple, but it's, we've lost, you know, you try so hard to present to people and, and pretend you're, you know, he just got out there as a person to person, which I loved. Um, it had to be his voice. It couldn't have been, you know, and it had to be, and he'd started it, you know, I, so I, I completed it in his voice, but it, um, it had to be his letter to humanity, his celebration of us and his kind of action points and call to action, um, you know, his last little gift. Well, I have to confess that the structure is brilliant. The idea that these 10 lines can become a man, uh, a manifesto if it's extracted and it, each of them is their own. So I'd like to just read a couple of the, yeah, you said there's, there's one uh, statement for each chapter. The first mm-hmm. one is the human advantage. And the statement is imagination is what separates us from the rest of life on earth. It's through imagination that we create the worlds in which we live. We can also recreate them. Um, another one that I will 
extract is the the one that you mentioned earlier that the chapter on rock and roll uh and it's titled be the change and the uh the statement is rock and roll was not a government-led initiative revolutions do not wait for legislation they emerge from what people do at the ground level so you can imagine the power of each of those and and there's eight of them uh, i won't give them all away after buy the book uh, <laughs> They sound um, great in your voice. I should have asked you to do the audiobook. That was fantastic. <laughs> if you ever want to, see, I I did my own stunts for my last book, Creative Calling, did you, and did you did the audiobook. Oh my god! Yes. Yeah, it I did that one. Such a grueling process. How I, long is the book? It's uh, three hundred pages. Oh four pages. <laughs> no, no, no. I have I did seven, seventy. Like, 70,000 words, I think, uh, 75,000 words. How long did um, that take? It was like 40 hours of reading. Oh, my goodness. You kind of go hours. into the future as well, don't you? Like that feeling, you know, when you look at a word <laughs> and it loses all meaning. School is a good one. If you look at school long enough, the letters float away and it means nothing. Um, and there were some sentences. 70,000 words. <laughs> I'm like, who wrote this sentence? You can't even, I can't speak it, let alone read it. I'm like, oh, God, I got no one to blame. No, and it's too um, late to make any changes at that point. It is. It's, it is. It was far too late. But I, I, the creative process is, um, as you talk about, you know, the, the 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 meta concept here is not lost in anyone that we're talking about. You know, a book about creativity, and that was a little bit of a. It was difficult for me in the same regard to write a book on it, and to hear you talk about doing that, and then trying to carry a legacy of your father, Sir Ken Robinson, and put your own experience in there and, you know, make it, you know, a thought for the future coming from a different generation. I can only imagine uh, how complex that must have been and that you did it in just a few months um, is nothing short of incredible. So thank, um, you. thank you for putting the work in. It is, it is absolutely beautiful and, and tidy. Um, I want to one one last area I want to explore and the relationship between creativity as in art and creativity the capital C that underpins the solutions to every problem we will ever know whether you know hu humanitarian economic um race racial anything right we're going to have to have creative solutions is there a succinct um, package that you can hand us as listeners and watchers right now, a roadmap, if you will, like this is a call to action, mm -hmm. but in, in a nutshell, tell us what to do. What is the action that you want us to take? Of course, we're going to buy the book. We're going to read it, but this yeah, is, it's also thousand words. <laughs> a, 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 more, a more succinct package. Um, I will try. <laughs> Um, I suppose, you know, it kind of goes back to your earlier point around, you know, people opting to tune out or um, the, the book makes the case that we're facing two very real crises. The first is the crisis of the Earth's natural resources and the second is the crisis of our human resources and that we have to address both. You know, we're stripping the world of its of what we need to survive and we're stripping ourselves of what we need to survive. Um, I think to answer this question by answering your other question as well, um, it's very easy a lot of the time to tune out, you know, and we, we do that. I'm guilty of that. We do that with the way that we view the, the world and the products we buy, the foods we eat, 
Um, so I suppose the, the package is to get involved. And we make the case in the book that if you're a stakeholder in education, and everybody is a stakeholder in education, because even if you think, you know, I run businesses that have nothing to do with education, you're hiring people. Someone said to me the other day, um, a man called Paul Lindley said, society is what happens when children grow up, which is very succinct and, and, and exactly right. Um, you know, so all of us in one way or another is, is invested in what happens behind the closed doors of a school. And it's, um, it's to get involved in the simplest thing to do is to commit to figuring out what your own diverse talent and passion is, because, you know, our, our cultures depend on each of us figuring that out. Um, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And go back to the, you know, one of your early points about if, you know, how, how much better the world will be when we can all do that. And I say when intentionally rather than if, because, yeah. you know, my, my belief is that that is the, you know, that is our ultimate destination is where everyone's doing the things that make them come alive. And we find the flint underneath everyone's rocket. Um, let's speak for just a second to the people who haven't found that for themselves mm -hmm. or who are searching or found, had it earlier in life, but have lost it. Would yeah, you speak to them for a second and let them know? Yeah, it's, it's daunting. Um, and I kind of went through my own version of that again, you know, the legacy of having a dad like daddy, you know, and being known for talking about the element and people are like, well, what's your element? I'm like, oh, I don't know. No, <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it's this, it's, um, it's writing. Um, but I, I think there's, there are a few things to say to it. The first is that I think one of the reasons that people don't dedicate the time and energy and resource to figuring it out you know and I I can't speak to everybody in all circumstances because there are people you know for whom this is much easier than it is for other people um, but for people who, ha who have the access and the resources or, or an easier chance to um, but maybe don't dedicate the time to finding what it is that they're passionate about because the time it'll take I think the best thing I ever heard is that the time will pass anyway you know so where do you want to be four years down the line you know um with any luck, you'll still be here doing something. So make it be the thing that you want to do. Um, I think another thing is that I'm not sure that everybody has one. You know, there there can be lots of things that that you find passion and um, that not everything has to be a, a multi billion dollar industry or even a career. You know, you can be doing it by in in this in the side moments, in the evenings, in the weekends, and um, you know, aside from everything else that you have to do, what are the things that you want to do? Because you. Mm. It sounds so cheesy to say it, but boy, have I been made acutely aware of it in the past two years. You really only have one shot at life. You know, my dad was dying and I, I almost feel, this is going to sound really weird, um, but I almost feel fortunate to have learned about death from him because I feel like I learned about everything else from him. So it, in some kind of strange way, it made sense to be watching him die and, and you know, even the mechanics of it. But one of the most incredible things is that I'm not sure he had any regrets. You know, in 70 years, he lived every single one of his 70 days, 70 years, every single day of the 70 years. Um, and one of the reasons for that was that he had polio. And, um, you know, he grew up in poverty. He had polio. He, he got polio from the speech therapist because he had such a bad speech impediment as a kid that he went to speech therapy where they think he got polio. So to go from speech therapy at four to becoming one of the world's top speakers, you know, is just incredible. Um but people used to laugh, you know, in Liverpool in the 50s at him walking with it. He had, you know, proper calipers like Forrest Gump on. And people would laugh. And he he learned to just keep walking. You know, he never crossed the road. He never turned around and went back. He said that he'd learned never to walk away from anything that frightened him. Um, 
And I think that's a secret. I think a lot of people maybe do know what their element is or what, what their passion is and they're terrified, you know, because what if it fails or what if it doesn't work out or what if it's, what if people laugh? Um, and, and it, it, it's about not walking away from, even if, even if you're terrified because you don't know what it is, it's about not walking away from what scares you because the time will pass anyway. And at some point your time will come and it's, what have you done whilst you were here? Um, the other really lovely quote, and I will butcher it, but they, that has been circulating since dad passed away that he said was what you do for yourself dies when you leave this world, what you do for others lives on forever. And, um, one of the best techniques I was taught by my parents when I was trying to figure out, I left school at 16 and a whole other story. Um, but was, if you don't know what you want to do for you, what are you going to go and do for somebody else? You know, go and volunteer or spend your time trying to make other people's life better if you, if you're in a position to do so. Um, and it's amazing how often that is someone's element is helping other people. It's amazing how often it can be that simple. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being on our show and sharing your, your life, your wisdom, the work that you've uh, done in collaborating with your father, uh, Kate Robinson in collaboration with Sir Ken Robinson. Imagine if creating a future for us all, uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant little package. Again, it's so hard to do all that work in such a small space that you've, you've done it so well. Thank you for being a, a guiding light. These principles have in large part guided my life, the, the, the company that we've created in creative live. So largely the first online art school, basically to help people. Awesome. Um, it's, it's been a treat to read this and thank you so much. We're huge fans of you and your father. You're, you can be a guest anytime here on the show. And <laughs> I look forward, I look forward to our paths crossing at some point soon. And uh, is there anywhere else you'd steer people uh, aside from, buying the book imagine if is there anywhere you'd like to direct the attention of the folks yeah. listening or watching so we have um an annual festival that we started called imagine if conveniently um that we started last year it, it, last year it was kind of a um a celebration of the life and legacy of dad but now it's a celebration of human potential that happens every year um this year it's march so it's all of march but um there's content all year round and so i'd go to imagine hyphen if.com um, imagine hyphen if and what is the format for for the uh that celebration well at the moment it's digital because um well because covid um but <laughs> because it has to be um so there, there's things happening it's a it's across platforms and it's uh, various different sessions of people you know kind of having conversations like this and um there are webinars and zooms and um all that fun 2022 stuff um, <laughs> it's, it's at various points over the month and then, as I say, then there's there's content that happens year round, and it's it's um, it's we've got an amazing, an incredible community of people who join and you know who are living and breathing all the things that we talk about or who are hoping to. So, um, I guess that's the other thing I'd say if you're trying to figure out what this looks like for you, then get out there and meet other people who are who are doing it already. Put yourself in the world you want to be in. Um, in this case, that's Imagine If. <laughs> Excellent. Imagine hyphen if dot com. Yeah. Thanks again, Kate. Thank so you. grateful for your time. And to, uh, on behalf of myself and Kate and to everybody out there in the world, uh, we both bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thank you so much for listening. And I want you to know that I appreciate the time, the attention that you give to the show, to the guests, and to your truly. I want to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to the saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. 
by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing the show, the tidbits that you learn, the experiences that you take away from here, we can collectively have a massive positive impact on the world. Now, whether you're new here to my orbit or you've been here for a decade, I would encourage you to think about how you can show up for your peers, for your fellow creators, and the people in your life that you really know and care about. And one way of doing that is to share this podcast. If you've got any value from one of these shows or if you've been listening for a long time, your spreading the love means the world to me. That's how this show gets out. We don't spend a dollar on paid advertising for the show. It's you and me and the guests on the show that help reach new people every week. So I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to remind you that the only way this thing grows is if we grow together. And uh, I'm grateful for any and all action that you take today. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.